Hello and welcome to The Lowdown, an insider's look at stories touching our lives here on Cape Cod and beyond. My name is Ira Wood and you're listening to us on WOMR 92.1 FM Provincetown, WFMR 91.3 FM Orleans, and streaming worldwide on WOMR.org. Growing up in poverty has wide-ranging and almost certainly lifelong effects on children, putting them at a much higher risk of suffering behavioral, educational, emotional, and health challenges. And yet, with all the attention our country has paid to providing reinforcement to impoverished families, we seem to be avoiding discussion of one of the most serious causes of child poverty today, the role of family structure, specifically the fact that almost 30% of American children now live with a single parent, while data shows that families with two resident parents are able to provide significantly more resources to a child's development. We all realize the American family has changed significantly. What we may not realize is that it's overwhelmingly the elites, the college-educated, who are actually getting married. My guest today is Melissa Kearney, a professor of economics at the University of Maryland. We're talking about her new book, The Two-Parent Privilege, How Americans Stopped Getting Married and Started falling behind. Melissa Kearney, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me, Ira. So one would think that identifying and documenting one of the most significant causes of childhood poverty in our country would be a subject that politicians and social scientists would be eager to sink their teeth into. But you tell us the opposite is true. Why is that? I think it comes from a good place in to the extent that I think a lot of people don't want to come across like they're blaming single moms for the predicament many of them find themselves in. I think it comes from wanting to be inclusive of all family types. And so it it feels uncomfortable, I think, for a lot of us, even though, by the way, social scientists have documented this. This is all over our academic journals. But when it comes to public conversations and making sort of policy or public comments about what we think should happen or needs to happen to improve the well-being of families and kids in the U.S., focusing on the role of family structure is just uncomfortable, right? It, it, it brings up a lot of sensitivities and personal stories and value judgments. And so that's, that's I think, a lot of the reluctance. Um, I also think there's a second reason why policymakers and social scientists have, a, you know, sort of tend to stay away from this in policy conversations. And that's because it's much harder to know what to do about it. It's a lot easier for us who live in the sort of world of economic policy to point to changes in the tax code or things we could do in schools or with government programs. It's a lot harder to think about what we could do to change really the way people are living and structuring their lives. So before I started your book, um, one of my own misconceptions, just just from looking around all the all the younger people I know in my own life, is that marriage today... Um, was just not what it was before. People are, are creating families like they always did, but they're just not tying the knot. They're living, as you say, in a European model and foregoing, which is probably not the worst idea, the expense of a big wedding. But that's not what you're talking about at all, is it? No, it's not. And actually, all right, this is part of the reason I felt like I needed to write this book for a popular audience is because there's a lot of misconceptions. And this is an important one. It is absolutely not the case 
that kids today are essentially just growing up with two committed parents who just decided not to get married. Rather, what's happened is the decline in the share of kids living with married parents has led to a situation where a very large share of kids just live with one parent. So, you know, 21% of kids in this country live with a mom and no other, no spouse, no unmarried partner. Another 4.5% of kids live with an unpartnered dad. Only 8% of kids in the U.S. Census, so this is across the country, live with unmarried parent figures. And what that means in the data is one of their biological parents and their parents' romantic partner. In about a quarter to 40% of the cases, that partner is not even the child's second parent or second biological parent. Furthermore, these kinds of unmarried cohabiting relationships in the U.S. are very fragile. They break up much more frequently than marriages. Most of those kids will not be living with two biological parents, you know, by the time they're 14, if their parents weren't married at birth. And so it's, it's just absolutely not the case that we've had this growth in a very strong cohabitation institution or social norm that's replaced marriage. It, it really is the case that now just, you know, 21% of kids live with an unpartnered mother, another nearly 4.5% with an unpartnered father. And by the way, this is more than in any other country in the world. Kids in the U.S. have the unfortunate distinction of being more likely to live with one parent than in any of the 130 countries for which there is this kind of data. So can you break it down for us, sort of what economic segments of our population are and are not getting married? Yeah, this is another really important fact that I think a lot of people um, have some misconceptions about. The highly educated class in America, adults with college degrees, are the ones still getting married in roughly similar proportion to they were 40 years ago. So the decline in marriage, and in particular, what I'm focused on is the decline in marriage between adults who have a child together, that has happened outside the college-educated class. I'll, I'll put some very specific numbers on it. For kids in the U.S. whose mom have a four-year college degree, from 1980 to now, the share of them living with, a mar with married parents has decreased only from 90% to 84%. Even though many more moms have a four-year college degree now than 40 years ago, marriage among those moms is still holding quite steady. The big decline has been below, you know, with moms with less than a college degree. And importantly, it's not just the most disadvantaged. So among moms without a high school degree, the, dec the share of their kids living in a married parent home has fallen from 80 to 60%. But here's another thing that I think surprises a lot of people. Among the middle education group, a group we might think of as approximating the middle class, moms with a high school degree or some college but not a four-year degree, the share of them, of their kids living with a married parents has fallen from 84% to 60%. That is a huge decrease in four decades. So now the group that really stands apart is not the most disadvantaged group with high rates of single motherhood, but it's the college-educated group. They are raising their kids in married parent homes at a substantially higher rate than everyone else. That adds to their, their advantage. And conversely, the share of kids outside that class living with one parent amplifies their relative and absolute disadvantage. 
So let's talk about what are the implications for children living with one parent. And by that, I just want to clarify, we mean single mother homes. Yeah, most of the data really is on single mother homes since they have always been the large majority of one parent homes. There are mounds of studies about this. This data is really irrefutable. Kids who grow up in a single mother home are substantially more likely to grow up in poverty. As you said at the beginning, they're substantially more likely to grow up in poverty. And that's not just because moms who themselves grow up poor are more likely to become single moms, which is true. Having two parents in the home means more income comes into the home because the majority of moms today do work. So even moving aside from um, poverty, the median household income for a married parent household is twice as high as for a one parent household. Now, again, some of that reflects the fact that more highly educated, high income people are likely to be married. But a lot of it is just the mechanics of having two adults in the house rather than one. So even if we compare similar people, so we compare kids, the outcomes for kids whose moms are the same age, have the same level of education, the same race, live in the same places. We see that kids growing up in married parent homes are less likely to have behavioral problems. They're less likely to get in trouble in school. They're more likely to graduate high school. They're twice as likely to graduate college. And then they're much more likely to have higher earnings and be married themselves as adults. And so, you know, a lot of the way to think about this is a lot of what's happening is two-parent households have more resources. Kids benefit from more resources. More income in the household means you could live in better neighborhoods, attend better schools, have access to better health care, more enrichment activities. And all of those things yield better educational economic outcomes in the long term. If you're just joining us, you're listening to The Lowdown with Ira Wood on WOMR. Today we're talking about the ways in which the national decline in marriage is affecting childhood poverty. My guest is University of Maryland economics professor Melissa Kearney. Her new book is The Two-Parent Privilege, How America Stopped Getting Married and Started Falling Behind. Just um, before I continue the questions, I want to just get one thing straight for our listeners. This is having two adult figures in the house is totally gender neutral. Is that true? I mean, gay marriages are are exactly the same as regular old straight marriages in terms of benefits for kids. So in my analysis and, and the data work I do throughout the book, I'm basically counting the number of parents. And so if there are married parents or two parents, I don't distinguish between whether they're same sex or opposite sex. You know, furthermore, I don't distinguish between whether they're biological or adoptive. Um, And in part, this is my economic lens I'm bringing to this, where I'm really focused on thinking about marriage as, you know, the pooling resources of two individuals rather than the specific relationship. But my read of the evidence that exists about the differences in outcomes for kids, whether they have same sex or opposite sex parents, is that there is no documented difference in outcomes for kids. So that's that's right. That's how I read the data and evidence. You know, one thing I, I also want to say about, you know, my my underscoring how clear the data is that children are just more likely to hit a whole bunch of success markers if they grow up in two-parent households. But there's two things that are really important to note here. None of this is to denigrate single moms. None of this is to say that single moms are not doing the best they can. It, again, bringing this resource perspective, economics perspective to the issue, 
it's just, you know, one parent, it's a lot of work raising kids and running a household and supporting a household financially, emotionally, all that. And so all of this is just to say, having two parents is beneficial to the kids. Of course, we all know lots of single moms who have given their kids resource-rich environments and their kids do exceptionally well, but that doesn't contradict the general patterns we see in the data and the fact that on average, having two parents means the kids are just more likely to hit a whole bunch of success markers. You tell us that boys growing up with a single mother are disadvantaged even more than girls. Why is that? Yeah, this is this is a really interesting finding that's come out of um, some really important papers that uh, teams of economists have written in the in the past decade. And I'm to be clear, I, that's not my research. I'm drawing on it. What these researchers find, and this is across different studies using large administrative data sets, so thousands and thousands of kids. Um, what they find is that the gender gap that now favors girls, meaning girls are less likely to get in trouble in school, they're more likely to do well in school, to graduate, to go to college, the gender gap favoring girls is larger among kids and among siblings who are growing up in homes without dads. And so it's really compelling empirical evidence that the relative disadvantage of boys is larger if they're growing up without a dad in their house. One of these studies goes farther and looks at all sorts of really detailed data about what's happening in the household, what's happening in the schools, what the neighborhoods are like to try and get at the mechanisms. And what they find in document is that kids who grow up in single mother homes do have sort of less parental investments. There's less time with their mom. They're more likely to experience harsher punish, uh, harsher parenting, um, which development psychologists tell us isn't, you know, is, is not the best kind of, of parenting for kids. So this fits, again, with the resource story of single mother households are stressed. If they're doing this by themselves, they don't spend as much time. They don't give as much nurturing to their kids. And what these researchers find is that those differences themselves aren't very large, but boys are particularly responsive to them. And so that really affects boys' outcomes more than girls. Another way to think about this, the way I think about this in plain English as a parent, you know, if I ignore my daughter or if I yell at her, she's still probably not that much more likely to go to school and sort of lash out or bully someone at recess and get herself suspended. My boy is more likely to respond to that ways. So, you know, my view on this is part of this reflects the fact that boys are more likely, again, on average, to express their internal frustrations with what we call externalizing behavior. But that's the kind of behavior that gets them in trouble in school, gets them in trouble with the law, and can sort of throw them off course. One of the saddest things that I that that your book told me is that single moms don't don't want or people with with less advantages don't want to treat their kids any differently than people with with more advantages. It's just that people with more advantages see a brighter future for their kids and therefore put more into them. Have I got that right? So I, you know, there's some theories that basically say, oh, even if, you know, these single mother households were married households, their kids wouldn't do that much better because these are the kinds of parents that don't read to their kids or don't care that much about education. And I and I just reject that proposition. I don't see any evidence in any of the studies that I've come across to suggest that 
somehow single moms or low-income parents, you know, don't care as much about their kids' outcomes, don't want to spend as much time with them, don't like spending as much time with their kids. I just don't see that. To me, what you see is like in some of these parenting interventions, you know, these single low-income moms, yes, they know it's good to read to their kids. Yes, they want to do it. Yes, they think it would be helpful for their kids' education. But then at the end of the day, they struggle to implement it. And, you know, again, coming at this from a resource lens and just thinking about this as a, a mom, you don't have to have different preferences or beliefs across people to explain these behaviors. You have, it, it's much, you know, it, it's very easy to see how it would be the case that if you were the only person in the house and you're the one who's responsible for paying the bills and getting dinner on the table and keeping the house together and reading to your kids, it's harder to find the time and the patience and the energy to do that. So my read of the of the evidence, looking at parenting interventions too, is that the reason we see married parents more likely to be doing the kinds of things with their kids that development psychologists say is beneficial for their kids is simply because they have more resources to do so. Let's get one thing out of the way. And this has the rise of single parents has nothing to do with what perhaps um, conservatives of the 1980s would have said was the rise of the welfare state. Am I right? So I reject the proposition that where we are now in the U.S. with such a high share of kids living with unpartnered mothers is because we have an overly generous welfare state. So the first thing to notice, we do not have an overly generous welfare state. The availability of cash income, unconditional cash income to to anybody, including single moms, is very low. And in fact, less than 10% of single moms have cash welfare coming into the house through the main programs, which are TANF or SSI. If you look across single mother households, 80%, the median amount is 80% of their income are their own earnings. So the stereotype that some people still hold on to that single mothers are making it through because they have all this cash welfare is simply not true. Now, this I will grant to some people who point to the role of welfare. It very well may be the case that in the 60s and 70s, the way these programs were created probably contributed to a rise in single motherhood in those decades. The program specifically at that time, you know, said you had to be unmarried to receive any benefits. If you went to work, your your earnings got taxed as 100%. But all of that has been changed. And in the 1996 welfare reform legislation, it became much harder to access benefits. It became, you know, caseloads fell. And so I'm not sort of relitigating the role of welfare in the 60s and 70s, what I'm saying is that is not the explanation now. Um, and so the the idea that we might reduce the number of kids living in single mother households by making it even harder for low-income families to access cash assistance or income assistance now just is not a well-supported position. And so I think that's really, I, I think that's just a really important policy point. The other just, you know, observation I'll note here is that the share of kids living in one parent is much lower in Europe and in Scandinavia, where the welfare system and government support is much more generous. So even just, you know, looking across countries, um, it's important to realize that 
we have about as meager and ungenerous a welfare state as as any other high income country. And yet we have the highest share of kids living in one parent homes. Hmm. If you're just joining us, you're listening to The Lowdown with Ira Wood on WOMR. Today we're talking about the potential price children pay by being raised by a single parent. My guest is University of Maryland economics professor Melissa Kearney. Her new book is The Two-Parent Privilege, How America Stopped Getting Married and Started Falling Behind. Okay, so let's ask the $64,000 question, what are some of the economic trends that you've identified as the causes for dads not living with their children? At the end of at the end of the day, what I conclude from sort of all the research and evidence and data that I've you know looked at is that the way to think about what's happened is both economic and social. And so here's like a broad, you know, in broad strokes, in the 60s and 70s in the U.S., we had the cultural, social revolution, changing thoughts about the role of marriage and gender norms. And what we saw over that time was a relaxation of social conventions of getting married or shotgun marriage. Um, you know, single motherhood was less stigmatized. Being unmarried was more acceptable. And we saw a decrease in marriage basically across the education distribution. So everybody got married a little less. Then you go into the 80s, 90s, and 2000s, and the decline in marriage among college-educated adults stalled out. Basically, it's like they worked through the social cultural revolution and and sort of stabilized at a certain marriage rate. But outside the college-educated class, marriage continued to plummet, and the you know and non-marital birth share continued to rise. And so, what do I think happened? Well, we know that a whole bunch of economic shocks and changes happened in the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s that was very good for adults with college degrees. Their earnings continued to rise. Their employment rates stayed high. Again, taking an economic view of marriage as a contract between two people to pool their resources and and run a household and raise kids together, the economic value of that proposition held steady. But for Adults without a college degree, you saw employment rates among prime age men fall. You saw their earnings basically stagnate. Women's earnings relative to men increased. The economic proposition of basically heterosexual marriage really decreased a bit. And then we have very good causal evidence that in places and communities where there were shocks that really reduced the economic status of non-college educated men. Thing like things like increased automation or the adoption of industrial robots that eliminated what were family sustaining middle class jobs for non-college educated men. Things like increased import competition from China in those communities when those shocks happened, when men lost their jobs or saw a reduction in earnings we see that subsequent to those changes, there's a reduction in marriage and a rise in the share of kids living in one-parent homes. So there's this causal link here between the economic, basically the the economic malaise of non-college educated men and the rise of kids living with just their moms. Um, So, you know, then what happens is you're now in a new social paradigm (laughs) where it becomes more common in certain communities to be having kids outside of marriage, to be raising kids in single mom homes. And so you've got this 
sort of really damaging cycle between economics and and social conventions and um, just an increasing share of kids living in without their dads, basically. You tell a wonderful story in the book that relates to a study on a community which suddenly went from an impoverished community to a very prosperous one because of the rise of fracking. So people started, men started making much, much better salaries. Did the marriage rate go up? This was really important. This was a study I did with my um, graduate student at the time, Riley Wilson. And uh, that's what I expected to happen. And actually, to be clear, it's not just one community. We looked at thousands of communities around the country, thousands of counties, not North Dakota, where the fracking situation was different. You had a bunch of migrants. So think about fracking in mostly rural communities elsewhere. Exactly as you say, oh, this is great. Employment among non-college educated men goes up. Their earnings go up, both in an absolute sense and relative to women. I expected to see a corresponding reduction in the non-marital birth share. The data very clearly reject that hypothesis. And what the data show is that when there's this sort of income boom in these towns that are that are sort of booming from this new fracking technology, um, you see an increase in births. So people do use this extra income to decide that they're going to start families. But that happens in equal proportion among married and unmarried adults. And there's no change in marriage rates. And there's no reduction in the share of kids being born to unmarried parents. So that surprised us. We looked across countries based on their baseline share of non-marital childbearing, consistent with this idea that prevailing social norms or conventions sort of dictate how people respond to an economic shock. What we see in the data is that in communities where there were already a higher share of kids being born outside marriage, that response, the increase in unmarried births to the fracking income or the fracking booms was larger. So then we compared this context to what happened in the 70s and 80s in similar communities in Appalachia when when the price of coal went up, that was really good for the income and earnings in coal producing areas. And back then what you saw happen was, you know, coal prices went up, earnings of non-college educated men went up, and there was an increase in marriage and a reduction in the non-marital birth share. So this is super interesting because it suggests that a very similar economic shock in similar communities, 30 years apart, lead to very different family formation responses. Uh, and, and, and frankly, I found this contrast and the result quite sobering because it suggested to me that improving the economic position of non-college educated men might very well be necessary to sort of restore rates of marriage among parents outside the college educated class. But at this point, it's probably not going to be sufficient. Hmm. What's it going to take? This is my last question. What's your suggestion? (laughs) That's it. So wrap it up in a minute. What's your suggestion? How do we get out of this? Okay, Ira, I will be, and this is, you know, humbling and and somewhat defeatist as an economist Mm -hmm. to suggest this is a really big social change. The fact that there's been such a large decrease decline in the share of U.S. kids growing up with two parents in their houses is a major social transformation. It's going to take more than economic tinkering on the margin to restore things. I mean, I could tell you, we definitely should be removing marriage disincentives, which are all over the tax code and all over the design of our income assistance programs. Those programs 
not deliberately, but by default, the way they're designed, discourage marriage. That might affect a few people on the margin. It's not going to have huge effects. I think ultimately, you know, the two really big sort of structural things we need to do, we really do need to double, triple, quadruple down on all of the things that policymakers talk about to improve the economic security, the human capital, the skills, the employment, the earnings of men outside the college educated class that, you know, that's that, like I said, I think that's necessary. We also see in a lot of these community programs that, that focus on responsible fatherhood, you know, these dads say they want to be more involved in their kid's life. These unmarried couples say they want to have good relationships. And then there's a lot of barriers, finance, you know, economic instability, criminal records, substance and alcohol abuse. So we really do have to meet families where they are with community programs that don't just give sort of parenting or relationship education classes, but also try to address these um, very real barriers, like economic barriers that are preventing, you know, couples, people who have kids together from, from creating and forming healthy, sustaining family relationships. On that point, I will say, at a social level, we need to be honest about the fact that two-parent homes are beneficial for kids that the rise in single-parent households has not been good for kids, or frankly, the single parents who are doing it themselves, or the dads who are basically marginalized from family life. And we need to commit to strengthening families as a policy priority so that we do more investment, education, scaling of these programs, community programs that aim to help families to address these barriers. Right now, there's very limited funding available for such programs. There's very limited uh, research funding available to study what works and what doesn't in that space. And I think that reflects the fact that as a country, we we haven't made strengthening families a policy priority. Okay, so, we're so going to have to end it there. And I thank you very, very much. Today, we've been talking with economist Melissa Kearney. I want to thank Maddie Dunn for his tech work on the show. The Two-Parent Privilege was recently published by the University of Chicago Press. This is Ira Wood with the lowdown on children and the causes of poverty. One interview at a time. Bye for now. 